0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I came here to podcast with friends. Y'all changed it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at an Airbnb on tour. And I got two guests just to say what's up at the beginning who happened to crash with me last night. I don't know where they came from. The first one is known as MC Frontalot. Hi, I'm an itinerant farm worker from the 30s. I just wandered over here. I don't know. We're going to go work on a ranch and hopefully not crush some puppy skulls. Nice and men. That's sad, dude. And then. From the mean streets of Metropolis, wearing black, loving Batman and Darth Vader. Schaefer the Dark Lord is here to just say hi.
1: I'm not even technically on this episode.
0: But, you know who is on this episode? A friend who has brought us all together, who's been a big support... Supportive guy in the scene, Brendan B. Brown of Weedus. And so in the van, we listened to part one. And I wanted to just ask my tour mates what their thoughts were on the part one of the MC Lars podcast with our mutual friend, Brendan B. Brown. Did we capture him correctly? I've known that dude for years, and yet I found the interview insightful and revealing. I, there's all this stuff I don't know about his past in the mean streets of Northport. We almost got beat up in that fight? That's crazy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I had no idea he... Uh, grew up in a violent post-apocalyptic movie.
0: What I liked about the interview was his talking about, you know, how much he was dedicated to playing guitar on the weekends. And you really could see in like, you know, that t- 10,000 hours or whatever, that's that Malcolm Gladwell idea that if you do something enough, you become a virtuoso. And he, he kind of reveals it kind of like these fools I'm touring with. So uh, they're not fools. So uh, I'm out with Schaefer, the Dark Lord, Mega Ran. And MC Frontalot. Megarant's not here because we stayed in Phoenix last night. This is his hometown. Don't worry, I won't say his address, but I will say he's a great guy. It's it, at the of, no, don't say uh, it! This is the corner of, of Doom and Catastrophe. That's a reference to an old Frontalot song. It, typical Lars accuracy, you have nailed my lyric. What is, it? Do, what is it? Dude and Catastrophe? whatever. So, so <laughs> we had this joke in, on tour where I'll, I'll quote people's songs like wrong and they'll be like, "Oh, that's not it. Oh, your passion about my project is not vindicated because you got it wrong." No. <laughs> and then and then we quote, but then it's become this joke where we quote each other wrong on purpose. And uh, anyway, okay. So we also got to hear the new Frontline album that drops December 7th, 3rd, 4th, I don't even know. But like that. or and then Schaefer's new album came out. But enough of that. I want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters. We got some new supporters this week. Shout out to Belmura and Yvonne Hork. Y'all are very supportive, and you have the two two of the coolest names of any of my Patreon homies. Also, we're doing the Chronicles of Narnia, so we got the horse and this boy coming out. Also, guess what's up? I want to give a shout out to Logan and Kirsty to OG Patreon supporters who've been down for the cause for a while. So anyway, without much further ado, I'm going to play this interview with Brendan B. Brown. Afterwards we're going to debut a, a weeda song which uh isn't actually on Spotify yet that Matt the bassist sent me that they asked me to play that's tight right exciting yeah so new weedas jam friendship and this this episode goes into his dealings with the major labels how he kind of like navigated his way to have a hit what it was like making the video and then the fallout for when oh no we only sold 25,000 copies or whatever oh no and Brendan was like wait He's like, maybe I should get a day job. And they're like, okay, you sarcastic punk. And he's like, no, I should get a day job. And I don't know about this. And guess what? 20 years later, Brendan B. Brown is still crushing it. Let's get going with the episode. And uh, afterwards, we're going to end with some final thoughts, y'all. Okay, so just to shift gears a little bit, I remember hearing this record of yours that we we'd play on tour, in that um, I didn't know the story about it, but and a kid brought you to sign it in like Scotland. This Mister Jones project. Sure, what's the story with that, and how does that relate to everything we've been talking about about your influences? And-
1: right. So so um, shortly after uh, my I had this uh, was in I was a lead guitar player and songwriter in a in a sort of quasi hardcore rock band um, called Bandersnatch and. That was where I discovered Walt Mink. Those guys had somebody had somebody knew Dave Hill. Somebody had gone to school, gone to Fordham with Dave Hill, and we wound. I wound up becoming a kind of Sons of Elvis fan. And anyway, it's a long, buried story. But the short point is, is that um, I, when my hardcore band, quote unquote, fell apart, um, I started writing for my own voice, and. Uh, that was where Dirtbag came from. And a lot of the songs for the first record came from, um, that immediate aftermath of that, like 90, 94, 95, 96. Um, and in late 96, I was introduced to, um, I was also in another band called Hope Factory at the time. I was a lead guitar player in a band called Hope Factory with this guy, Ali Nambar, who was, who was the first really, truly genius songwriter I had ever seen that I'd got to work with personally. Um, he was incredible. And he also knew how to produce his own records. So I was learning from that experience. At the same time, I got approached by the guys in my old hardcore band about this uh, rapper guy named Ali D who wanted to put a record together. And I went in and uh, began laying down tracks in his studio uh, of stuff that I was experimenting with that had my voice. And I was kind of like replacing my voice with what I thought he was going to wind up doing kind of thing. And crafting the songs that way, and uh, I've spent nine months—the better part of nine months—driving into Manhattan after my day job in uh, in Syosset, Long Island. I was fixing printers and computers and things. And I in the
0: Chrysler Building, right? Did,
1: or, yeah. Well, that was later on. Yes, yeah. I did. I did have an opportunity. I did work in the Chrysler Building fixing printers for two weeks. The top of the Chrysler Building is something else, man. Let me tell you. Um, but anyway, um, so. I was writing this stuff and I was very much in this sort of prototype phase on the weedest record. I wasn't even telling people I was doing it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't showing anybody anything. Uh, I was still pretty insecure about where my own voice was or how I was going to find it and how I was going to sing and play guitar at the same time and all these things. It, basically, I was so inspired by John Kimbrough to actually do that, that I figured I could probably figure out how to do it in my own way. Um, so I was taking some of the, some of these riffs and things that I was playing around with and making them into this Mr. Jones record with uh, an engineer, a really talented engineer named D- Todd Childress, who was um, who was working at the studio there on, oh, I think it was 28th Street or 26th Street. I can't remember where it was, but um, we were uh, making this record for nine months. I drove in from Syosset and spent, you know, 7.30 p.m. to 1 in the morning making this recording. And the, and the other two guys from my hardcore band were involved, drums and bass, and they were submitting their own stuff too. They were writing a little bit for it as well. And, um, this was, uh, suddenly morphed into something that seemed very serious because, um, uh, Michael Bolton's manager came on board somehow. I don't know how that happened. And, um, they were shopping it all of a sudden. And then there's this period where it stopped calling me back after I finished recording. Um, and during that period, they got a big deal with, with Alcafaro at A&M Records. They got a huge record deal, like a 90s record deal, like the old school one. And I found myself kind of suddenly on the outs of it. I was on the outside looking in after being in the studio the whole time. And I had failed to have the conversation about securing my part of the financial side of the whole thing. Mm. Um, so at the very tail end of it, I had to kind of assert myself. Um which didn't work out well, as you would assume. Back then, it was easier to get to get screwed. I think if you if you uh, were a writer, now you can write something and put it put it into the U.S. Copyright Office and submit it to your BMI by yourself and. Uh, back then all that stuff was really hard to do <laughs> like you couldn't just you know you had to know somebody to get that done and get the forms and all the stuff you know so i
0: remember you said
1: like pe- you could have a
0: uh, intern
1: at a label put his or her name on as a co-writer that could that was a thing that could happen yeah
0: when all this happened then how did did you talk to them like friend to friend or was it kind of like
1: Well, i had i attempted many many kind of like aren't we a band conversations and i found out through the course of those conversations that it was it was kind of more to it than that like that I was a small fish in a big pond and um that my contribution was being viewed in a way that was kind of um work for hire and uh you know it's not a lot of guys who hold down that kind of schedule for nine months if it's a work for hire it's kind of you're burning the candle at both ends because you want to see the project through.
0: What's don't you, and you have a song about it, right, with Weedus.
1: Yeah, there's a one, there's one song on the first record that yeah. that kind of uh, addresses these things. Oh, it's it's kind of just cut and pasted verbatim one of the arguments that I had when, with a with a management assistant on the phone. But uh, in the end, uh, they they uh, they saw through to to pay me something that made sense for even for a work for hire and uh with that money I bought the first three recording decks for album 1 uh, the first weeest record I bought 3DA 38 machines Tascam machines and I bought a a Joe Meek preamp and a fancy microphone and a couple of other things to to get me started on on truly making multi-track demos of album what would become album 1 and quite a bit of that survived and became album 1
0: so even though you were even though it didn't work out as well financially as it did for for him. It, it it was able to launch your being able to create and own your master. Right.
1: I I am actually grateful for the experience because I was in I was in a studio for a very long time, getting a really firsthand information on how to engineer a record from Todd, and. Um, and paying close attention and absorbing it all. And then on the heels of that, I got firsthand information of how the record industry works. And that came in handy later. Yeah. So, um, while the record, the record was finished and came out and the way that the lyrics and the, and the vocal delivery were finished came out, I was like not quite as enthused about being part of it because I felt like, well, I, it didn't represent me the way that I, I wanted to be. And so I, migrated all of my work that i cared about over to a full time uh rethinking of of how to have a band myself and that was the from 19 from the end of from the middle of 97 through to 1999 was when weetus was in uh full uh beta mode like beta testing like doing shows in in the city, uh, bet- we bounced between the Luna lounge, the old Luna lounge on Ludlow. Hi Rob Sacker. You're amazing. Thank you. And, uh, the Mercury lounge, uh, around the corner. And we did like, we planned it very carefully. We kind of like, we wanted it to be a good, a good night for the clubs because we knew that that was the way to get invited back. Duh. So we made sure that it was, uh, as close to the weekend as we could, or as close to, uh, uh, college vacation time as we could and once every three months or two and a half months. We played one of those two places and we uh, built built a crowd that would come to our shows and uh, We had you know lines out the door for for our final uh, couple of Luna lounge and and uh, and mercury lounge shows
0: So what were ways
1: of promotion back then? little four by six cards that you cut up yourself out of poster board, uh, after you had them printed, like and just handing them <laughs> out, just handing them out wow. and can keeping, keeping in touch with people. People used to call each other and check in like friends, uh, old friends from, from when you were a kid or whatever, and college people and like people you worked with, people used to call each other a lot mm. and just kind of like, Hey man, thinking of you, you know, that's a text now. Yeah. Right. But it used to be like, Oh, hey, dude. I just want to check in, and see how you doing, what's going on. And you'd have a, a 15 minute conversation with somebody who you hadn't talked to in a in a month. And you'd drop that you were playing sometimes. You'd be or? like, Hey man, you, you know, you wanna come hang out as we're having a we're having a party after at this place, but we're playing a show first. Then you wanna come down, hang out. Cause mu-
0: music really drove the culture and drove like it drove a, it's a, a social need, right?
1: Kind of. We kind of saw the show as an opportunity to get together with people we knew to hang out with them. Yeah. And we made sure that there was a place to go afterwards where we were going to kind of burn it down a little bit, you know, so that it wasn't just a hit and run so that there was a real social engagement happening.
0: So the seeds of this then led to your, your first deal, right? Yes. Like, and I should yeah.
1: mention, um, during, also during this time in the 90s I Hope Factory toured with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts oh cool which was the real the first real management deal that ever came around was for Hope Factory and it was Kenny Laguna uh, who signed Hope Factory uh, to Blackheart Records to Blackheart Management and we did a bunch of dates on the east coast with Joan Jett and that was like holy crap these are real this this woman is the, a real rock star like she's so powerful up there, and in control of her instrument and her voice and her band, and um, it was it was really humbling. Mm. She was intense and and sort of like this dark, powerful figure to me who I looked up to and was a little bit scared of, intimidated by, you know, like. But on a fan level, like I watched you when I was a little kid, kind of like I can't believe I'm doing. Yeah. This it was a really valuable experience get get throwing instruments and, and stuff into a van to go to Virginia to play a show with Joan Jett and then come back home the same day kind of thing and and
0: then playing for fans who obviously were new right who hadn't seen you on YouTube or Spotify there was no
1: such thing yeah. it was 1996 you know
0: so it taught you to that got your performance chops up
1: got my sort of you better get comfortable on stage really quick chops up yeah not I wasn't actually playing better I don't think I was just kind of learning how to settle myself, like be settled with your gear. Remember to run your cable through your strap and plug it in or else it'll get unplugged. So we didn't have any guitar techs. right? Mean, we were doing it ourselves You it was all, we were on our own yeah. in front of 3000 Joan Jett fans who weren't too into us. Fair enough, you know, like, but yeah, but it was that valuable experience that way. And, um, there was a guy who worked for, uh, Kenny Laguna at the time worked for Blackheart. Um, There was two guys, Jason Abbey and uh, John Lennon, Um, his real name, not, not a stage name. Anyway, John became a promoter in the city. He was a party promoter, and he was kind enough to help us get our after parties together. He saw the show as an opportunity to clear out the Mercury Lounge and bring everybody over to you name it, the place he was having a party you know. Mm-hmm. So we we partnered that way and we made sure that we made sure that everybody knew where the after party was because the after party was where we got to hang out, you know. And at the time New York City was still a place where your gear got stolen out of your car if you parked it there. So that happened a few times, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, but that was the price you paid for going into Manhattan and utilizing this this energy of the city and this mechanism of the city to advance your cause, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was totally worth it. So uh, the label people saw
0: you and they saw the buzz and they heard the songs and...
1: Uh, yes, exactly that. Yeah. Somebody, who, somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who worked at Columbia Records found themselves at an after party. Okay. Not the show, the after party. And then the following show were people wearing like Weedish shirts and people were carrying around burnt CDs that I had burnt them on my CD burner. Okay. Cause that's I, was awesome. gi- I was giving them away. Apogee CDs, the gold old gold Apogee CDs. I was burning on a, on a tower and giving them away of uh, early versions of teenage Dirtbag bag and a couple of other songs. We called it teenage Dirtbag bag and friends and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, I guess when the label label guy who was an assistant, Steve Ramirez, saw a CD being passed around, he wanted to know where it came from. And he came to, a, um, I think he came to the next show. And then after that, he brought his boss, who was Kevin Patrick, uh, A&R, the strangest, coolest A&R guy at Columbia Records. Um, and uh, he, uh, he was dark horse as hell up there, which we came to find out wasn't too much to our benefit in the end when it came to the international company, Kevin's vibes were really cool, but they didn't extend overseas and they didn't extend to the rest of the company. So he gave us a good impression of Columbia records. And he also was cool with us producing our own first album, which was also unheard of at the time. So, um, but, uh, before that he was just tagging along at the, at the word of his assistant who, who was a, a really, 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 smart music kid Steve was. And um, they just showed up and they were like, we love this. And then Kevin got one of our, one of those Burnt Abadji CDs and he went up to Donnie Einer's office that following Monday and he played it for him. That's it. And he said, sign this right away. That's what I heard. That's the, that's how it was told to me. So, um, and in the end of 1999, we signed a deal memo with Columbia records because uh, they, I remember them saying, "We want to seal this up before the end of the year. We don't want it to go till next year." Um, and uh, so they did, and uh, we were signed to Columbia Records in, in December of 1999, and then the following March we were signed to EMI for our publishing.
0: And then the album came out like the the, the summer,
1: the 2000. F- so the out al- the mix of Teenage Dirtbag was was finished by Dave Thoner, who also mixed uh, mixed Missing You by John Waite and uh, For Those About to Rock by ACDC, which is why I liked him as the mixing engineer. And um, it was the end of April of 2000 that he returned his mix of Teenage Dirtbag. And Kevin, we listened to it in Kevin's office, and it was incredible. He had, na- he had nailed the shit out of it. Kevin gave me this look like he wasn't big on talking, but he gave me this look like, oh, you're in trouble now. Like this is going to go do something. You bit, you know, you're you fucked, <laughs> which was great because that kind of set us straight on what it means, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, we, we uh, went down to uh, Nashville in the co- next couple of weeks and we brought our hodgepodge of, of tapes that we made in my mother's house. Uh, I should backtrack a little bit before we sent anything to Dave Thoner to be mixed, we spent uh, the entire month of March in my mother's house, re-recording and finishing up all the stuff I had worked on from 95 until then. So we, we picked, we picked the final roster of songs. We, we recorded real drums and real everything. And we finished the album multi-track. And that was nuts because I was still working a day job in Times Square, the place that put me to work in the Chrysler building for two weeks. And uh, taking the train out to my mother's house like at 6 p.m. and working until... Four in the morning, not sleeping. Sometimes getting right back on the train and going back into
0: were You were tracking drums at like four in the morning. Yeah, we were
1: tracking drums at four in the morning in my mother's house while my parents were upstairs trying to sleep. Wow, what yeah. great it, what great parents! It was man. in the well. It was in the basement, so it was hard to hear. Yeah, but the but but and we did everything we could. Did we put mattresses up on the walls and we put like you know uh, big foam pieces across the gate the door jam so that it wouldn't leak and. We tried really hard to make sure nobody called the cops. We were more worried about the cops than my parents because my parents knew we were signed to Columbia Records, so they were kind of like, "Oh, this is neat. Let's see what happens," you know. That gave you this legitimacy in their eyes. I think for my father, that because Willie Nelson was on Columbia Records, okay, and my for my dad, who was a big Willie Nelson fan, he might have thought, oh. Uh, by, by the end of that third week of it, they were kind of like, "Okay, when the, uh, when are we getting our dining room back?" You know, because we had the we had the Soundcraft Ghost console on the table, the dining room table. And uh, cables running everywhere. And I had these big taped off notices. Please do not touch. Please do not move this. Yeah. So my poor parents were suffering this so inv- supportive. total invasion of their home for these three weeks. Yeah.
0: I will also say that dining room table is where Joe and I and you guys did the demo of gi- this gigantic robot kills, yes, yes. which is kind of funny. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs>
1: so it's a magical Joe, table. Joe from Pat and Penning who used the same space, the same non-acoustic nightmare space. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you know that this record was a hit? And that the song was like, like, when did you start to get an inkling? Cause that must've been crazy. Right?
1: So I, the first thing I ever felt about teenage dirtbag, when I finished the third verse, that girl verse was that I had successfully completed a story that was like, I finished, felt like I finished a story and it felt very much like creative writing class. You've done the assignment you're going to get a good grade. It's okay. You know? Um, and I kind of always felt like it would touch somebody somewhere, but by the time I, uh, was, was writing it, I had already had a few cynical experiences and kind of like, you know, I, I remember one time in CB's gallery, I kind of cornered John Kimbrough and like fanned out in front of him a little bit and taught, he, he got a piece of his cynicism from the, from the music industry. Um, cuz he had delivered all these incredible records to major labels and and found uh found the struggle too too much inevitably uh, to bear and i and that was like i was already there when i wrote teenage Dirtback. i already heard one of my heroes kind of say don't do it like don't don't do this to yourself you know um and um so i i but i well, all i really thought about it in that context was that it would have it would affect somebody somewhere positively that, that somebody would like it. Maybe just my mother, you know. Right. <laughs> and and that and that whatever else happened was very much up to the chaos of of things I don't understand or can't control. And all these years later, it kind of still is that. We just got a tweet that said that it went double platinum in in Britain, in Great Britain. Congrats. Um, yeah, and I think that's just England not counting Scotland or Wales, or maybe it is. I didn't it didn't say UK. It said it said British plat double platinum. So that took 17 years. <laughs> what do I know about how this works? I know nothing about how this works. You know, that's just proof that like I don't know I don't know what's going on.
0: But so what were things that then being in a record company in the turn of the century, which seems so archaic now, what were mm-hmm. things that they offered you that you couldn't have done yourself? We
1: were sent on radio tours where we were being used uh, unbeknownst to us as a sort of like trading chip, like we'll send weed to do an acoustic. If you add the Evan and Jaron record, we had no idea that that sort of complexity existed. These relationships between the radio people at Columbia records and, and the radio stations. This was the old world of radio where program directors really, were powerful people who offered the fruits of the world, you
0: know. And there maybe was payola or stuff behind the scenes. True
1: gatekeeping, old true old school gatekeeping shit that we don't really have a, a, a version of today, except for what I guess you would look at if you were looking at Harvey Weinstein ruining the careers of women who wouldn't fucking tolerate his shit, and um, it was it was. I never experienced anything of that in that regard. There was no sexual favor request or, or any of that stuff, um, but there was just as much kind of like power brokering going on, um, and I think that that would that would come off as sort of like why would you even why would you even have to deal with that today? Like let me just put it on just go on your. Facebook page and build it be be a YouTuber and build your fan base on YouTube like why would you fuck around with these people why would you talk to anybody right you know Um, and also uh, the way we had this we had our first week of sales in America we came in at like 19,824 records sold or some shit like that 19,000 and change and uh, there was this heavy disappointment Oh, you know, we didn't break the twenty thousand psychological mark, you know, we first first new bands like you know, you gotta do twenty thousand or can you fucking imagine selling twenty to like nineteen thousand records in your first week today? Yeah, yeah. like unheard of, you know. As a new band. As a brand new nobody ever heard of your band. Like Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> well and, and you you've always said how like Napster and the advent of MP3s were like First of all, it was very present on those servers and a lot, a lot of people attributed it to Weezer, didn't they?
1: I remember we, when we were having that meeting about the psychological barrier, it was on the phone. They were like, oh, we, you know, that's why they weren't calling us in to sit down because it, was, on, it was, was lower than they had expected. They said uh, the thing about the not breaking the barrier of 20,000 and I said, well, this, what, it, is, is there anything going on, on on Napster or LimeWire that you could take a look at? Like, is it, can we look at any of that? And they had no idea. I was talking about. They were Ah. like, they were like, what to see, to show that the single was reacting, Yeah. Like, 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 like what's, you know, what's the reaction. And, um, and so that was, it was all, it had all happened that summer. Like the whole thing happened that summer. The timing was so strange and in some ways really fortunate because we immediately began thinking that we were in the wrong relationship. This label thing was like kind of I don't know man and I remember the guys who worked at the computer company I worked at called ASI they were telling me you know I'm not sure man music is software now and this was like 1997 98 they were saying stuff like music is kind of software it's not like a it's not a thing anymore you know it's going to be on servers isn't this it's not, not, not going to work like it's not going to work like, like it used to and they didn't really know how else it was going to work but they were saying to me like don't put don't put your stuff on on a CD man don't do that that's software or don't bank on that being your right income, right it's like right? It, it's like it's it's perfect it's a perfect copy they'll get they get regenerative copies out of it people can boot like you as if you, they own the record plant like it's not it's no longer de- degradation of tape cassettes and stuff like that it's like it's like you're getting a first generation copy every time you do it
0: so you were able to then launch your relationship in and your trajectory from this old school corporate machine and what was the process like going indie and doing the second record?
1: The second record uh, was written and began recording less than a year after the first one. We were in Australia because we we went through this period following the record coming out on August eighteenth. I think it was 2000. We were on tour with Zebrahead. We were on tour and that was a radio tour. So it was like whatever the call letters, uh, whatever the uh, frequency. Of the radio station was the price you paid for the ticket. Okay, ninety three point five was like ninety three cent tickets, like and so on. And we did a month on the road with Zebrahead. We, I look back and I and I wish that we could have been kind of like better touring partners on that because we we were kind of in this weird spot where we were getting the middle finger every night from from people in the front row, and I have to say that in some places we came we became demoralized, and the reason was. Dirtbag was still happening at radio stations in pockets, Chicago, San Diego, Seattle, Portland, um, Boston, um, Philadelphia. And we would pull into this market and we just would have a fucking like 5am call to go into the radio station and do a morning show. Then we would have a sound check right after that, that we were late to. And then we would have a show that we were late to. And it was like, we couldn't catch up with the way that the tour was routed. It was routed for a band that got to sleep until 11 a.m. and we were waking up at five, and we were totally sleep deprived. All of us had bronchitis, and mm. and it was like there were periods where it was Im- literally impossible to do what we were what we were set up to do, what we had been sort of tasked with. I don't think Zebrahead saw the best of us. I think they saw a lot of like bleary eyed, like irritated, like first timers. And they'd been out. Zebrahead had been out a lot. Yeah, they were a lot more experienced than we were, and it, we missed an opportunity to learn from them a bit. And you um, were on. You were sharing a bus with them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we were on a. There was twenty-one people on a hockey bus. Wow.
2: That's twenty-one guys.
1: <laughs> it was nuts. After that, we we hooked up with uh, sr seventy-one. They were cool, and Eve Six were cool. These are all bands that I mentioned before. The Spotify playlists are now based on that tour. Right. And we kind of got got a little bit better at it. And then uh, we were set up to do tour dates all the way up through Christmas. And Zebrahead, uh, not Zebrahead, sorry, Eve Six pulled their tour dates. They, they canceled them. And we kind of made the tactical error of picking them up. We said, this may be the last time we get to do this. We want to stay on the road in America for another month. Let's let's do it. Let's pick up all the tour dates. Without them? To, without them. Yeah. And it was Bad news we were, that was our plane you know plane in front of two people in Lawrence, Kansas and and for a month right through Thanksgiving. and then the first week of December of 2000, Kevin Patrick called me and said, "You are quadruple platinum in Australia and we and you have to go there, he said. And I was still sick and so tired and we were in San Francisco and it was the first time I ever took a Xanax on a plane. I fell asleep on the tarmac in San Francisco, and I woke up taxiing in Sydney. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I was like I missed the whole like you know thirteen. That's great. Point. Yeah, it was it was pretty interesting experience. That
0: was your first time in Australia, then.
1: First time in Australia, and we went from playing in front of two people to playing on television. It was really stark difference of like, and we were all almost ready for it, not quite. You know, like I, it's, it was all so by surprise and herky jerky and erratic. And I can't say that I was in a place to enjoy it the way that I would today, you know, like, but, um,
0: it was just so, it was like being on another planet. I imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah. it was, it was like, what do we even do? What is going on? What, you know, this, none, none of it works out the way that you would even imagine any, any imagination could prepare you for.
0: And in subsequent years, well, I, your second record did come out, uh, Hand Over Your Loved Ones came out in Australia.
1: So that was what we did. We said, Australia likes us. Let's move down here for a couple of months and make the second record here because we can get a good studio. Jimmy Barnes will give us his his basement studio to, to do a record in. We can figure these things out over here. We can't do any of this in New York. It's, I'm not going to ask my mother to give up our house again. We right. don't have a place to do it. That would be later. You'd ask right. her. <laughs> so we, exactly. So we tried to, um, make the second record in Australia. And that was when we got into a lawsuit with, uh, our, our management. And it was like nightmare. Like, oh my God, we almost got to a point where we we're going to do something. And now I have to go back and start talking to a, an attorney. Um, so we came back to New York and we got ourselves into a lawsuit and, Right after we got back, sometime in March of 2001, Teenage Dirtbag hit number two in England, mm. and that summer was the summer of those two consecutive uh, top five singles, Teenage Dirtbag and A Little Respect, on the English charts um, on TV, and that that was the era of being like uh, very famous in a place suddenly. Australia, they were kind of like nipping at whether or not we were worthy of being ubiquitous, even though they had they, the single had hit really hard down there. When we went to England, it was like, oh, you're going to play for Prince Charles at the party in the park and you're going to, you know, with David Gray and Beyonce and, and, and you know, and oh, you're, you're presenting an award with Alicia Keys and like all this, like this. It was really like suddenly like, holy shit. Like it like, took
0: almost a year, I guess a little less than a year took
1: a little less than a year, yeah, uh between the well, it was actually it was about seven months from the time that Columbia Records had said we were disappointed in the first week's sales in America to the point that we were you know hosting television shows in England, and it was a ton of clumsy not having your act together in between, like
0: but I guess one of the things I always have noticed that I've been to the u k with you like multiple times, and like one of the things that's so iconic was. You had a great video that was really the old school distribution methods really made sure people saw. And I feel like it captured your personality and the fact that it had these like movie stars in it and like really well produced. And it seems like that was a piece that was a special moment. Would you agree?
1: Every time somebody tells me that video is a special video, I think of my own personal special moment on the shoot. I was sitting on a milk crate in between shots inside of a tent in California at a high school somewhere. And one of the, I think he was a, 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 either a set guy or a grip or something came running over, opened up a box next to me, a road case next to me and took a, a huge lens, movie lens out of it. And I'm just kind of like quietly watching him do this he's hustling. Everyone's hustling on the set. Mina Savari and Jason Biggs are on the set. Everything's sort of electrified, and I'm just trying to stay out of everybody's way on this milk crate over in the corner, and he closes the box, and he puts the lens down on the edge of the box about three feet away from me, mm. and he turns the other way, and I turn the other way to see what he was looking at, and then I turn back in time to see the lens roll right off the edge of the box and hit the concrete, Oh! and he picks it up, and he goes, oh, fuck. I'm going to get fired for this. This is $150,000 lens. And he said that to me with this look on his face of like absolute disaster. And the first thought that went through my mind is, are they going to charge our account for that broken lens? Is that going to happen? Because we can't afford that. And I was like, the, the insight oh there is, is, that, is that I was scared to death that something was going to happen to make this financially unavailable to me that the, that the money thing was always the thing that was driving what the label wanted to do. And the second it hit a certain threshold, we were gone. They would cut us off. And that was kind of like coming from the nineties. That was kind of like what I had developed a sense of what things were like. I don't know if they charged us for that. I don't know. I never found out. I was unable to look at any of the line items
0: or anything. I imagine they, they were insured. Like for stuff like that, maybe. And also the thing that like you being on the outside, kind of like not not knowing where you are supposed to do, you could have grabbed the lens from falling if you had had like agency in that moment. Like he's like, oh I, well, I couldn't reach
1: it. I could, no matter how fast I was, oh. I couldn't have reached it." He had put yeah. it in a really precarious space on the edge of the far edge of the of the road case,
0: one hundred fifty thousand dollars lens. And,
1: and had I, even if I had not glanced up at what he, whatever he was looking at and yeah. lunged for it, I couldn't have grabbed it in time. It yeah. was just too late. I saw the very top of the lens like this, and it cracked down. It fell long ways onto the oh my god onto the uh, bayonet of the mount, and it cracked the mount and it cracked the little piece, the first piece of glass inside it.
0: So it's like that's like a crazy metaphor for how like chaos theory and how little things, even in your moment of victory and like becoming this pop culture, all these moment. people
1: have assembled around this song, yeah, to bring something to life. Not necessarily my vision for the video which was a little bit different. But they're here. They're here in service of this thing, this piece of art. And that might've been the death of it right there. I just saw it. So I just saw this. I just witnessed the death of the whole thing right there. I just saw it.
0: But it was saved and it, like what happened? Did, I don't know. Did he, I, he put it back he, he in the He disappeared.
1: Case? I never saw him again. He ran off with the lens and I never saw him for the rest of the shoot. And that could have been because he was doing something else or because he got fired or because, like, I don't know. I have no idea but the lens that he pulled out of there was the one that the director had had asked him to go get. So I don't know. I don't know. That's crazy, idea. man. Yeah.
0: And now and now like um, a situation like that is you shoot a whole video on your iPhone yeah. like a yeah, great exactly. video. Exactly. It's just as good.
1: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, I mean the final cost of the Teenage Dirtbag video I I saw one time. I didn't see the line items, but I saw the final tag was $450,000. Yikes. So, was 150 from the lens that just fell off the thing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. When you put out your second record, then you were able to negotiate
0: being able to put that out without a label, right? So, we
1: delivered the record to Columbia, and Donnie Einer was no longer there. Uh, he uh, he had given his job up to another executive and um, they didn't like it. They hated our second album. They didn't get Lemonade, which is now our fourth most popular Spotify song. They, they never released that song. They didn't put it out. Um, so, you know, they, I remember they, were, they brought us in, which was weird. They brought us in to sit, to sit us down with the international uh, team and the local Columbia Records, New York team. And they all sat, we sat down and they gave us this laundry list of things they weren't going to do. We're not going to pay for TV anymore. We're not going to, you're not getting an American release. We're not releasing your album in the States. um, Which then stopped us from getting our second publishing advance. We had recouped our publishing, our publishing advance recouped in six months. We were like a successful, with the exception of that video, which cost so much money. We were close to being, on the recoup side of our first record deal, which was also unheard of, right? Probably because we made it for for peanuts in my mother's house. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, the uh, they gave us this list of stuff they didn't want to do. They're not making they're not making a video. They're not gonna do a touring budget at all. They're not gonna put it out in America. And it was all a list of like this is it. We're not doing this. Um, I think that they wanted me to go and record a third album because we were signed for six. I think they were trying to get me back into the studio for more material. Um, to see if they were feeling it, right? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, they just—I don't think—I I do not think i, I do not think the feeling it was. I maybe they didn't even listen, right? You know, maybe somebody had listened and said no, and that that infected the rest of the company or something. I don't know. But um, at the end of uh, them reading us this list of of we're not gonna's they uh, the guy who had replaced uh, Donny Einer looked at me and said, "Well, you've been quiet, Brendan. What do you, you know? What do you think?" What are your thoughts on this whole thing and I said well if you're not gonna if you're not gonna put the record out I should probably go see if I can get my day job back and I wasn't being a smart ass I was just like scared, being practical scared about money I was just scared about money yeah you know I, I lived on the lower East Side in a very expensive at the time apartment um, in uh, in on Avenue B in 14th I mean and I'm saying expensive it, it would make today's rent look like nothing but it was still very expensive for me and um, I, uh, I knew I needed my job to keep that. So I, I simply said what my concern was and they took it in a bad way. They were like, uh, well, if you feel that way, you can take your goddamn record and you can get the hell out of here. And um, that was them saying, we release you. You're gone, you're done. And that was how we ended our, uh, our six album deal with Columbia Records after our first one was successful.
0: Because so many artists in that situation, who's the when the label didn't want to put out a second
1: record, were kind of shelved, right? Tons of them. And you were you and had, the BMG merger happened after that, so all almost the entire class of two thousand artists was shelved. Like was like oh we gotta we're we're, re, we're rejiggering the whole thing. Two thousand and four, iTunes. Um, yeah. you know, I when did the iPod come out? Two thousand three, maybe two thousand three. Yeah, so it was like this whole like whoops time wow. time to time to call the old done and start something else. And Sweet. we we got out right before that. So you
0: had, and then it came out in Australia as Hand Over Your Loved Ones.
1: That's right. And that then was the original title of the record
0: was it. really, Did it go to radio? Or had or? a
1: had a totally botched and like under like I think that they made a thousand copies and sent them. Just sent them in boxes to to a couple places,
0: and then and then it was never in stores. In that's right. Was it wasn't.
1: It? it wasn't. It was very hard to find. It was like serviced with a whimper, you know.
0: So then, since then, you've put out three or four. How many records have you put out?
1: Uh, we're on it. We're halfway through recording our seventh, and we've released one single from it so far.
0: So it's always just amazed me how you've been able to, on on the momentum of that moment and continuing to work and, and, and engineer your own music put out so many like DIY records.
1: Well, they were all, there were always DIY records with the yeah. exception of a little bit of work we did in Australia. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Brendley who who worked on, who engineered some of that stuff in the studio in Australia in um, uh with the exception of whole Amoeba and um, the story of William McGovern and Randall from album two. Everything else was is has without exception been recorded at my house or my mother's house.
0: So has your uh, writing and recording process changed, like over the years?
1: Yeah, we went um, after we got out of the deal. I started to reflect on how unprepared we were for some uh, some parts of it, and I started focusing on infrastructure and rehearsal, and making sure that if we ever got invited to do anything serious again, we had the, we had the stuff to do it. Um, so I think some of our early TV performances are okay, but more often than not, we were kind of scrambling to explain why we don't have Marshall stacks, why we don't, why, we, uh, why I can't use a fender twin, why, uh, the drums and the percussion have to be next to each other. Like there was a lot of like, well, aren't you a green day style three piece? Where, where's the Marshall stack? Where's your, where's your MPEG SVT where, you know, like we were like, no, we don't do things like that. So so I rebuilt things to to make sure that it was an infrastructure that was stable and reliable and no one would ever ask any questions about. And that was 2003, 2004. Then 2005, we put out Hand Over Your Loved Ones. I'm rather, I'm sorry, uh, Too Soon Monsoon. After we rebuilt what the band was and rehearsed and recorded the songs live. So it was... All of the stuff that I didn't get to do in the nineties to prepare for the first record, we did for the third.
0: So for the third record, did you recorded everything in one take?
1: It was all single takes. Wow. Live live performances. We played we played a song like Something Good, the first song on the record. We played it 256 times. The oh second the second time we did it, we trashed the first one. So it was months of standing in a room together. With the in-ears recording multi-track to pro tools so you were just determined to get it perfect determined to be a live band that could replicate it
0: yeah and and in the old system the old model where you were like on another planet you didn't really have the time or agency to do that yourself before right it was kind of like this powerful reclamation of your of your of, of the of the mechanics there
1: was no one at the label or at or in our management or anywhere who understood that a live band takes process to, to be arrived at, that that is something that has to be developed. And this is long after the 70s and 80s when bands would get a first record to do poorly on and then a second one to do a little bit better on and then a third one, they really had to hit it. You know, that yeah. that was over. You got right. one, you got, it went from, it went from you get three records to you get one record to you get one single in each decade. So you get a month. Yeah. So you get, you get, and then, and then we had a single that did well and they still were like, nah, we're not doing album two. Um, and, uh, you know, my goal was always to be an artistic pain in the ass, but not a financial one and right. see if that worked and it didn't. <laughs> so, so, you know, I thought, well, that's it. I mean, we're, we have to be independent now. You yeah. Know? Um, should have listened the first time Ian McKay.
0: What do you think of Steve Valbini's, like production technique? I did a song about him a few months ago for Patreon and like, about how his model would just set up the mics and record it. And I don't know. I always felt like your t- production style reminded me of his.
1: I think he's a genius. Yeah. I think he knows that the, that the most important thing about a good sounding record are the fucked up elements of each individual sound. Not the not the hi-fi clean awesome elements. Yeah, there's a place for that in some recordings, sure. Uh-huh. But he is may, way more interested, in my opinion, anyway, in what is what's going on, what's going into that microphone that's that would that is wrong, that is interesting, wrong, quote unquote, off the technical map, you know, H- human or
0: or or grimy kind of,
1: yes, right, yeah, or or something like that, something that isn't. Cut like a cookie, like some something weird. Like, why is this snare? Dr- this snare drum doesn't sound like a snare drum on its own necessarily. That might be a good thing, you know. That's for that reason. In Utero, although those aren't his favorite mixes, In Utero is my favorite Nirvana record. I didn't like. Um, never mind. When I was in high, in college and it came out, I didn't. I wasn't. I was like, this sounds glossy. Sounds really pretty and polished. And Michael Beinhorn with the Super Unknown record also did something similar with Soundgarden where their first record, um, was, uh, kind of clean and, and clear. And, or I shouldn't say their first record, their first major label hit release, bad Motorfinger, was slick. And then, um, Super Unknown was like this trash can record that's just had all this humanity to it, and room sounds and really could see the drums being bashed and things like that. So, um, yeah, for that reason, Steve Albini would be one of, is definitely one of my favorite engineers. So
0: what's going on for the rest? What do you have going on this year?
1: So, um, we are, we're tumbling towards the 20th anniversary of our, in 2020, it's going to be before you know it. Wow. You know, um, and you know, when you're talking about preparing for a tour, we're going to prepare every single song we've ever done. It's about 75 tunes. Um, that we'll have to know how to play. And go out and do a tour where we... I haven't decided yet. I think we might do a thing where we play the entire album front to back at the end of the night. Um, the first album. and Or maybe we'll just pepper it throughout. We haven't done set lists in a long time. But we're preparing for this massive sort of uh, 2020 thing for us. Which is a milestone. Yeah, And also uh, we're recording... Uh, our seventh album. We're in the process of doing that. Um uh if you'd like to maybe you can de- debut a little bit of it on a little little snippet of it on your on your air. Yeah, I can, yeah, that'd I can be cool. send you. That would be cool. Uh the second single, not the first. The first is already out on Spotify is called Tipsy, but the second one is called Lullaby. And so far we've only released it to our Patreon family. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Weedus. <laughs> but um uh yeah there's like there's like this there's like this library thing going on. We're cataloging, Matthew and I. Um, all the old VHS tapes from us playing the Mercury Lounge and the Luna Lounge are being converted in, into digital so we can give somebody a package. And um, the documentary, You Might Die, A.D. Lane and uh, Ian uh, Ian Jones are making a, a documentary. I think I,
0: I talked to them for that maybe.
1: Did you? Maybe. Yeah. Have they been working on it for a few years? Yeah, it's been it's been going safe. It started they started following us around on the tour bus in 2008.
0: <laughs> I, w- I want to end with one story that you told me that always struck me as like a amazing story about how life can be so random and how like those moments where you connect with your heroes and things bigger than you are, the things that like really resonate. And the, your story you told me about meeting
1: Kurt Vonnegut is is a really cool story. It was the summer of nineteen ninety-three. I was uh my uh, friend from high school had his parents had a little bungalow on the north side of Southampton, which is where the people who worked and lived there year round lived. This tiny little house, cute little home that they had, and um, we used to go out there and like kind of like just drive past the rich people and just look and stuff. Um, it was like four or five times we went out there to hang out, and one of those times, like I said, it was the summer of '93. Um, I was uh, I had a I had a Mohawk, long hair. Rest of my head shaved. Long hair in the center and like, straggly like, grunge hawk from nine circa ninety three, fishbone hair. I I would I would have called it at the time. Yeah. And um, Angelo Moore was a was a big hero of mine. Anyway, um, his parents got tired of us hanging around the house. they were like, here's twenty dollars. And the keys to the Honda. Go take. Go drive into Bridgehampton. There's supposed to be a, a, a fair there today of some kind. So Saturday afternoon, these two idiots popped into the, their parents' car and drove out to Bridgehampton, which was quite a bit more fancy and she-she than the place that we were coming from. Um, and we went to the Bridgehampton Public Library uh, because Chris wanted to buy some... Um, Vonnegut books he was recently obsessed with Vonnegut from from whatever he was studying in Villanova and I was only vaguely aware of who Kurt Vonnegut was I didn't know anything about uh Dresden and firebombing or him being a POW or any of that stuff um but uh I followed, tagged along, and Chris went. We went up to the steps to the Bridgehampton Public Library, and we get to the top, and there's a cover fee you have to pay to get in. It's like twenty dollars a person or something. So that was that was going to be more than we had. So we, the security guard was kind enough to tell us that there was a used book sale happening around the corner in the garage behind the library, and so that's where we went. And we went down into this dusty garage that smelled like mildew and and squirrel shit, and uh, we. Chris picked up a stack, maybe nine or ten original first print vonnegut novels, um, and uh, and I when I saw how serious he was about it and how kind of obsessed he was, I said, well, "Who is this guy, man? Like, what's what's his story, man? What, why why do you love this guy so much?" I was 19 years old at the time, I was like, and he said, um, "Oh man, he's." Uh, He's amazing. He's a science fiction guy and he rolls his own cigarettes and he fucking survived the fire bombing of Dresden and some kind of like meat locker in the basement of a building held by the Nazis. He was a prisoner of war. Well, and he's going on and on and on and on. And he said, well, I said, well, what does he look like, man? He's like, he looks like Mark Twain. Check it out. You know, and he flips open this, this super old first, first or second edition of, of, uh, was it breakfast of champions? I think big, it was a big book. It was a large size. And, uh, is a centerfold. Well, not a centerfold. The, the, what was the back panel? Uh, oh, like the ja- dust jacket flap. Yeah, dust jacket flap had yeah. a picture of Vonnegut lying on the grass in a sort of tweed sweater um, and a button down shirt and like having smoking his own rolled cigarette with the t- Mark Twain mustache and a whole nine yards. And I thought, Oh, that's a, that's an interesting looking guy. And I looked up from the paper. We're standing there on the green and, Kurt Vonnegut is walking towards us. It was him. And I looked down again. (laughs) I thought, I better be right about this, because I'm not going to say that this, you know. And I looked up and it was him. And he, and I said, and there he is. And I pointed to him. And no sooner did I point it to him, he took the book out of my hand. Kurt did. And um Butler at this time, my friend Chris Butler hadn't said a word. It was just (laughs) like you know yeah. <laughs> just shock Yeah, you know just utter shock and he was basically wearing the same thing he was in the picture which was crazy and he's flipping through this book and he's looking at these two idiots with the cut off jeans you know kind of early 90s fishbone hair and Chris has this other version of a mohawk with he had curlier hair so it was like Fido Ditto kind of Fido Dido looking hair like big hair and um he keeps he keeps clocking us he's flipping through the pages and he's looking at us and I kind of got the feeling he was he thought we maybe had an assignment on him or something that it wasn't legit that it was like these kids had been told that they have to go get some Vonnegut books they don't they're not doing it because they're interested mm-hmm. and uh, Chris kind of put that to bed by um, by saying uh, I think he blurted out like you're my favorite author. I can't believe this. You know, I think he said something along those lines and he just kind of uh, 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 in between. And I'm at this point kind of becoming like hysterical. Like I'm kind of like giggling uncontrollably cause it's yeah. so weird.
0: Yeah. Right. I didn't
1: even know who he was. Yeah. I held his picture and then I shook his hand like uh, boom, boom, you know? And, uh, I subsequently became enamored of his writing, not as much as Chris, but, but I, I am really into Vonnegut and, um, I think he is the heir to, to, the, to Mark Twain, the sort of like absurdist modern language guy. Um, and, uh, Chris, I think had a pen pal with him after that for a few years. Um, wow. Yeah. And um, so he ended up signing, the he books. signed the books. He signed, he signed the book and he made this comment while he was flipping through the pages. He goes, Oh, look how yellow it is. It's so sad. And uh, I had this weird college professor uh, in my last year of college, um, transcendentalist guy who was teaching us. And uh, and I had, uh, he assigned Vonnegut at the end of this last semester. And uh, I had uh, gone up to him after class. He, he went on and on about how Vonnegut was was implying that nothing mattered that it was all just a big nothing and so on and so forth. Um, and like an idiot, I went up to this guy and I said, you know, I, I actually accidentally met Kurt Vonnegut two years ago and he expressed remorse at how yellow the book that the, the book that we had had become. And he had his real sadness about him. And I don't think that he thought it was all a big nothing. Like, I don't think that that's what, what he's getting at. I, I don't think that's true. You know? Um, and he gave me a D after four A's on my first four papers for this guy. He gave me a D F- after I said that to him. Wow. He fucking tried to fail me. Did
0: oh. you write an essay about that? That
1: The last novel was Vonnegut. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. Because he felt like you were- Slaughterhouse la- Five. Did he think you made that story up or he just disagreed with think your- I think he
1: had an issue with me telling him he- I didn't do it in front of the class. Yeah. I waited until everyone was out and I relayed a personal story to him about what I thought Vonnegut was really like and that I didn't take that from his writing. I refrained from arguing with him in class and he still wasn't happy with me.
0: Well, that maybe his his point in pointing out the yellowing of the pages is that it's a shame that things lose their luster, you know, But, but, but there's meaning in it too. Make me
1: young. Make me young. Make me young. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a good thing that's a good note to end on sentimental <laughs> yeah man nostalgia but that but i think that's a cool story because it's like you, like he saw these two punk kids like obviously randomly having having a stack of his books and he's like oh this is like a moment like how many times do you think that happened to him in his life probably not many if ever i don't
1: i would venture to guess that he never bumped into a pair of fucking like x-generation idiots yeah coming out of a shishi garbage book sale uh in Bridgehampton, carrying a stack of only him
0: and, him ima- and only him. imagine if you'd gone to the other other book sale you wouldn't have met him
1: wouldn't have bumped into him and you know what he was skipping the one you had to pay for he yeah. was headed directly for the garage where we had been he wasn't right. even interested in going up those stairs so Be- it wasn't you know
0: um so he was lit so was he did he live out there like did you research it later was like-
1: uh we we found out that he'd lived out there. Chris got his address in the book that he signed, and he had asked him during our little little conversation on the green there, uh, "Can I write you?" And he said yes, and he wrote, it, he gave him his address along with the signature, and um, cool. And he had a pen pal with him. He had a little pen pal with him for a while.
0: This is be- be- very special letters to hold on to. It's
1: so dope. Yeah.
0: Brendan Brown, thank thank you for coming and giving me so much time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, MC Lars. Thank you for having me.
0: And where is the best place for people to keep updated on the new Weedis, Weedis projects?
1: com and patreon.com forward slash Weedis. Also, uh, the Twitter account known as at Weedis is the place that I am every single day talking to people. Uh, we'll answer any question or talk about any topic. Um,
0: yeah. All right, cool. All right, check it out. And uh, thank you again. Bye. Bye. Oh, thanks for letting me use your mic
1: too. Oh, sure. No problem. You. It's It's yellow. I think you should have one. It's joyful. It's joyful.
0: So that was Brendan B. Brown of Weedis, and uh, that was a pretty great interview. Thank you, Brendan, for being on. So uh, any final thoughts about, you know, that episode from my colleagues? They're, they're here, so I want to include them. I'm going to assume that it was an expertly crafted interview because Brendan B. Brown is a champion of humanity. Next week, we have the legendary Megaran, and also I want to talk about tour dates Today we are in Portland, tomorrow we're in Seattle, then we go to Boise, Salt Lake City, Denver, Kansas City, St. Louis, and then we end this tour in Oklahoma City. And then Frontalot, the you go to Ireland with Weedus, is that true?
2: I think that might be announced already by whatever day it is now when you're listening.
0: Okay, so Frontalot's is going to Ireland with Weedus, so, uh, uh, yeah. and then uh, Schaefer the Dark Lord, uh, your new record is out, right?
1: Correct. It's uh, called The Department of Darkness
0: heck yeah all right so that's all thank you all for listening we'll see you next week oh please like they always say leave a subscribe tell a friend leave a comment if you want and if you don't like it leave a comment tell me it's trash click subscribe and like it, that's how you use internet smash that what I say smash the blank blank like button or whatever smash the M blank like button beat those hearts and those thumbs into submission all right so uh, we'll see you soon and uh, thanks for checking out nerdCoretour.com for tickets And uh, thank you all for listening. Bye.